You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Proverbs 31 verse 10 to 12 is what we'll start with. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Proverbs 31 verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Proverbs 25 verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 6, 32 to 35. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonour and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Clarice. And as uh, Paul mentioned, we're continuing our series in Proverbs, and tonight we're thinking about marriage. Uh, there was an article in The Age a few weeks ago with a quite striking headline, Does Anyone Actually Enjoy Marriage Anymore? It was written by uh, someone called Abia Dib, a Middle Eastern woman in her 20s, and she explained in the article how when she was a kid, she, her parents ran restaurants and she would go along uh, after school and she'd sit there and read and she'd be uh, reading but also eavesdropping on people as they came in and she'd hear these little snatches of people's conversation and, and get this little glimpse into people's family life. And it was often really discouraging. She would hear the husband kind of come in and joke about his wife, oh, the old ball and chain, you know, the trouble and strife, or, or see them flirt with the waitress in front of the, the wife or something like this and she would be so uncomfortable. And it left this really strong impression on her. These glimpses of domestic life, she says, struck me as sombre, how people treated their spouse and spoke about them when they weren't there. And all of these things accumulated over the years have made me wonder, do people actually like their spouses? She goes on to describe how in Western culture we tend to be quite negative or about marriage, even ironically. We talk about the nagging wife or the stupid husband, and that's on TV and movies and all of these different things. And then she also notes the sad realities of many marriages as well. People staying back late at work to avoid their families or uh, financial abuse or people having affairs or marriages ending in divorce or, or even just the fact that so many people are getting married much later now as if they're trying to avoid marriage for as long as possible. It's all pretty bleak. And yet for all that, she says that she still wants to get married. She talks about how she loves and craves romance and monogamy. Love is the greatest joy in life, she writes. Ultimately, my belief in love trumps everything else and, and, and all the feelings of fear that I might have. 
call me a romantic, I guess, she ends. And it made me wonder, like, how do we view marriage? How do you talk about it to other people? If you're single, is marriage something that you want? And if you're married, is it something that you would recommend? As I said, we're continuing our series uh, in the book of Proverbs, and we're up to this topic of marriage. And Proverbs is a massive fan of marriage. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favour from the Lord. And Proverbs has a lot to say on this topic, and we're going to look at that tonight. But before we do that, I want to do two preliminary things. I want to say two things first. First thing is a quick word to those here who are not married. Perhaps you've never been married. Perhaps you're young and you've never uh, really thought about it, perhaps, or you've not been in a position to do it, or you've never met the right person. Or perhaps you've been single for a long time. Maybe you've had a number of relationships, but they've never worked out. Or perhaps you have been married, but you aren't anymore. Whatever your story, today's sermon will be about marriage, but I want to assure you that it is not just for people who are married. If you're thinking about getting married, then I hope that what I say tonight will help you think through what to look for in a spouse and what to expect in marriage. But also, even if you're not particularly fussed about that, I really hope that you can listen because you'll see some of the realities of marriage, some of the challenges and opportunities, and I hope that you can help those around you who are married. We're the family of God, and so we need to support each other in the various things that we're doing. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is that it's worth noting that Proverbs does not provide uh, either the, the first or the final or the fullest word on marriage. So there's other passages in Scripture that will tell you more about God's design for marriage and the symbolism of marriage. Think Genesis 1, for instance, and, and the first marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. Or think about Revelation and the final marriage between Jesus and the church the picture of that, or Ephesians 5, which is probably the fullest picture of marriage. Proverbs doesn't provide that kind of thing. It's not providing a meta-narrative of marriage. It's doing something else. It's not trying to do those things. It's trying to do something else. What it's really doing, see, all of Proverbs really is trying to give us practical skills for living. Wisdom is knowing how to live well. And so when Proverbs talks about marriage, it tries to get into the nitty-gritty. It tells you what marriage is really like and then gives you the kind of skills so that you can do it well. That's what Proverbs is all about. And there's three big things that I think it says about marriage. The first thing is that we need to choose wisely in who we marry. And then secondly, we need to cultivate and build a happy home. And the third thing is that we need to protect our marriage and commit to faithfulness. Let's think about this first one, choosing wisely. If you want to have a good marriage then you need to choose your partner wisely. And so you need to marry someone who is wise. Uh, Proverbs is very strong on the idea that we become like the people around us. As we saw last week, if you have a wise friend, then you will grow in wisdom. But if you have a foolish friend, then you'll start to become like them as well. Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so if that's the case with normal friendships, you can imagine that that's kind of exemplified in the friendship of marriage. So when you get married, that's really your best friend. That's the person you'll spend the most amount of time with in your life. And so they will have the biggest impact on your attitudes, on your actions, on your words, on how you think, on your state of mind. And so it's essential that you find someone who is wise so that you can become wise through them and with them. 
And how do you do this? How do you find out if someone is wise? Well, there's lots of different things, but tonight I want to focus on the fundamental thing, and that is a wise person has a relationship with God. So as we saw in week one of this series, the foundation for wisdom is this relationship with God. Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you want to live well, you need to be wise. If you want to be wise, you need to fear the Lord. That's the flow. That's the key. As we saw a few weeks ago, the fear of the Lord is basically what you might call reverent obedience. It's a recognition of who he is, how great he is, how big he is, and then a a flowing out from that, a willingness to obey him, a humble obedience. And this actually reshapes everything. If God is the Lord of your life, then that reshapes every part of your life, as the writer David Hubbard explains. It's a, it's a new way of looking at life and seeing what it is meant to be when viewed from God's perspective. It's, it's a new set of glasses that changes the way you see everything. And when you put it in those terms... You can see why it's so important to find someone who shares your faith. So you're, you're building a life together, and so you want to be building on the same foundations. Your values will shape every decision that you make in your life, and so you want to make sure that those values are shared. Just think about how you spend your money. A Christian will want to give some of their money to the church, but a non-Christian will think, well, why do we need to do that? Or think about uh, how you raise your children, the values you give them. A Christian, will want to, as we saw today, will want to dedicate themselves to, to raising their child to know and love Jesus, but the non-Christian might not be in, on board with that, might not agree with some of that stuff. Or also even just think about what it could be like for a non-Christian who, who knows that ultimately there's someone even more important than them. See, the Christian lives, they love and cherish their spouse, but ultimately God is number one in their life. And is it fair for the non-Christian to not be number one? It must be hard. So what happens if you don't have the same common values? You'll end up pulling yourselves apart. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To be yoked is a reference to how cattle were bound together when they were pulling a cart, and the illustration is clear. If they're not equally yoked, if they're not on the same thing, then one will go this way and one will go that way, and they'll pull themselves apart. And so you end up having a very difficult marriage because you're going in separate directions. Okay, well, that, you might be able to see the wisdom of that, but you've kind of got a bit of a problem. Maybe you're here and you are married to a non-Christian or you're a non-Christian here and you're married to a Christian. What happens then? What are you supposed to do about that? Some people imagine that that means your marriage just can't work at all. I've got a, a dear friend who, who uh, wonders about this and thinks, oh, maybe God just wants me to separate from my husband. Or maybe our marriage is cursed and there's no hope for it. Well, I don't think that's what the Bible says. See, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul actually addresses this very issue and he says, look, if you really need to separate, that's okay, but it should come from the initiation of the non-Christian. If they want to do that, then they can do that. But he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. But if the Christian wants to stay in the marriage, then they can and they should because they can have the most profound impact on the person they love. 
He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, over time, as you live out your faith, they will start to see what God is like. Just think about it. A non-Christian needs to know Jesus, needs to come to meet Jesus, and you can be a part of that process. As you uh, live as one of Christ's people, they'll start to see what Jesus is like, and they might be drawn to that. Uh, Lee Strobel, the best-selling author of the book The Case for Christ, has a testimony like this. He and his wife were both uh, weren't believers when they got married, but then his wife later converted. And Strobel admits that at first he just wanted to have a divorce. So he'd married this woman and she was fun and she was lively and carefree and risk-taking. And now she was, he was worried that she'd just become a prude who'd just want to spend all their money on grimy soup kitchens or something like that. But over time, he saw the incredible impact that God was having on his wife. She became more and more beautiful to him. He says, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated by the changes in her character. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of all of this, and so I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity, an investigation that would lead ultimately to him becoming a Christian. So if you're in a, a marriage like this, trust that God can do something profound in and through you. As you become more and more like Jesus, they will see more and more of Jesus. So that's the starting point. We want to have that fundamental starting point. But then beyond that, I think we also need to make sure that we, when we're choosing wisely, that we find someone who complements us, who, who fits with us, has things that we don't have, and we have things that they don't have. We work together well. Now, this can be kind of tricky because I don't know if you noticed, but men and women are quite different. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but uh, there's this thing going around on social media uh, all about the Roman Empire. Uh, about a week ago, uh, a woman asked her partner, like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And without even thinking, he said, oh, three times a day. <laughs> And she was obviously surprised by this. She said, well, there's so much to think about. And there really is. Like they built an entire empire. They had incredible roads. They had sewerage. They had awesome armies and great tactics with their shields and stuff like that. And they had aqueducts. I don't even really know what an aqueduct does, but it's impressive that they made them and they're still working. Now, it is surprising that men think about this so often. A lot of women are kind of surprised by this. This morning we had someone, as I said this story, and she, he, her, his wife turned to him and said, oh, do you do this? And said, yeah, of course. Like, it's just what men do. And there's lots of different things that men do. I follow uh, accounts on Twitter, for instance, which just says why men live shorter. And you see all these videos of men doing stupid things. We are different people, very different. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, they say. And so how do you come together? It can be hard to find that. But also really important that you find someone who compliments you, that comes alongside you. And it's really important in your spiritual walk as well. It's not just that you want to share the same faith. You want to have a faith that works together well. You want to be spiritually compatible. Uh, I feel like my, I've experienced this with my own wife. I think about, for instance, the way that we, we, we dis consider our faith. Uh, I'm, I'm quite a, a thinker. I like to think a lot. And sometimes I, I, I love, I'm a nerd. Like I love reading. I love learning things. And so I've probably learned more about 
theology than my wife has. I should have. I mean, I went to Bible college for 12 years, so I probably should have. She doesn't have that training. But what she does have is this wonderfully sharp mind. She's a very incisive thinker who can just see through things to the core principle. It's like if we're watching a murder mystery, she'll work out who the murderer is within like 20 minutes. And I'm at the end and I'm like, oh, wow, is that person? And she's like, yeah, couldn't you see? Like crickets. Like I have no idea how these things work. But it's like that in faith as well. See, sometimes I'm thinking and I'm thinking and then I get stuck on a thought. And, and I can't move beyond it. And I'm just kind of rotating on it. And then she's able to kind of untangle me. She's able to see through things. She understands what's really there. See what she's doing? She's, she's complimenting me. We're, we're working alongside each other. And we also seek to uh, grow in godliness, help each other grow in godliness. As we saw last week, a true friend is an honest friend, someone who's committed to helping you grow and will is even willing to intervene if they see that you're going off track. The sweetness of a friend, Proverbs says, comes from his earnest counsel. And you see, your, your spouse knows you better than anyone else. They can see your strengths but also your flaws, and so they can speak into that better than anyone else can. And so you start to grow from each other. Proverbs says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. That's the goal. We're trying to, to help each other grow. Uh, take my wife and I when, in the way that we approach conflict. Uh, I'm generally a calmer person. It takes me a little longer to get riled up. I mean, she's Greek. And as she said to me, when you go over to Greece, people are shouting at each other when they say good morning. Kill a mirror. Like, well, okay, fine. Like it's, it's a very dramatic, passionate kind of place. And that means when there's conflict between us, You'll get pretty excited, <laughs> and it's generally me who will need to calm things down eventually. Now, that's an important thing that I can do, and I can try to speak into her life in there, but there's also strength in Ivana's attitude too. She, she has this fire, and that means that she fights for justice. She can't handle it when she sees someone who is uh, being taken advantage of, or when someone does the wrong thing and there's no consequences, and so she has this this righteous anger, which can be incredibly powerful. And I learn a lot from it. See, I like to think of myself as a peacemaker, but actually often I'm just a peacekeeper. Rather than having true conflict, I'll just kind of sweep things under the carpet because I don't want to deal with it. But Ivana helps me see how I need to approach these things, how I need to step into them, being willing to do that. So we're learning from each other. Iron sharpens iron. You see, one of the great responsibilities and privileges of marriage is that you are here to help your spouse grow in godliness, in, in becoming more like God, in being all that they could be. That's what you commit to. And the payoff for that is incredible. Tim Keller says, within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in this journey that you're taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. That's what marriage is. It's helping the other person be all that they could be all that God has made them to be. So Proverbs makes it clear that we need to choose 
our spouse wisely. And then the second big thing that I see in Proverbs is that we need to commit ourselves to building a happy home, into cultivating a happy home. As I said before, Proverbs is all about wisdom for life. And so when it talks about marriage, it wants us to think through how do we build a happy life, a content life. And so when it talks about marriage, it has a lot to say about domesticity, about life in the home. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff that it could say here. It could talk about the horror of uh, violence within marriage or emotional, physical abuse, something like that. It could say all of those things. It doesn't actually talk about that. I think it's almost because that is so far beyond what Christians should live, be like, and how anyone should be like. Sadly, that is prevalent even within churches that there can be abuse within marriages. But Proverbs doesn't actually talk about that almost because it's, it's so wrong that it's outside the categories of marriage almost. So what Proverbs focuses on instead is what it looks like in the day to day. And really what it wants to say is you want to build a happy home, one where there's not squabbling, one where you're not at each other all of the time. This is so key, where the atmosphere of the home is a happy one, a united one. See, Proverbs says you can have wealth, but it'll be worth nothing if you're at each other. Proverbs 21, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It makes it clear we shouldn't be at each other. A wife's quarrelling is a continual dripping of rain. It just it corrodes the intimacy of the marriage. Now, you might have probably noticed that the villain in those Proverbs is the woman. And I think that's largely because this book was first written to men. We saw in the first week that Proverbs is written as the advice of a father to his son. And so it stands to reason that he talks about uh, what he should look for in a wife. I think it's appropriate for us, though, as a secondary audience, to broaden it out. It's not good for a wife to be quarrelsome, but it's also not good for a man, for the husband to be quarrelsome or to be demanding. Uh, that word quarrelsome is probably closest to what we would use for the word nagging. Essentially, it's saying that we should be careful not to be overly critical with our spouse, not to nitpick, to spend all your time focusing on their failings. Really, it's talking about those day-to-day frustrations of life. Now, when Sometimes there is a really important conflict that needs to happen or something significant needs to be talked about. But a lot of the time there's just this low-grade resentment that builds up over little things, over the toilet seat being left up or down or crumbs being left all over the table and someone else to clean up or someone didn't remember to put out the bin where you get in your, your car and you realise it's set to your wife's position rather than yours. Are these little things that can kind of just annoy you or the way you speak to each other. This is the stuff of day-to-day life, the common frustrations of marriage. And, and how you respond to those things will actually set the tone of your home and of your marriage more profoundly than you can even imagine. John Gottman is an American psychologist and a marriage counsellor. Uh, his work focuses on predicting divorce and therefore helping people avoid it. And over the course of decades, and looking at hundreds, thousands of couples, he's identified four key factors in a divorce. I'm sure you're all keen to hear them. They are criticism, 
contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So criticism is when you attack someone else's character. Oh, I just knew you'd let me down. You always do that or you never do that. Contempt comes when you use sarcasm or ridicule. Oh, figures that you did that. Maybe it's even just a, a look, a dismissive look or the arch of an eyebrow. That's what we can do to other people. But then we can also re, uh, respond badly to them. Perhaps they challenge you about something and it's valuable what they're saying. They're trying to do it well. But we respond defensively. We just refuse to receive it. We make excuses or we uh, shift the blame. Or we just stonewall them. We just refuse to engage and go all passive-aggressive. Gottman calls these four things the four horsemen of the apocalypse because they can destroy and end a marriage. And he's seen this again and again. He's done thousands of studies on this and has actually been able to work out with a reliability of something like 94% of, of what kind of couples will divorce because they have these traits in their relationship. And it's more than just that. It's incredible how powerful these things can be. In fact, they've done research that suggests that Couples who do these kinds of behaviours are even more prone to infectious diseases. So if you're feeling like your spouse is just contemptuous of you, you're more likely to get a cult. It's quite remarkable. But it illustrates a strange truth that I often see illustrated in marriage. The people that we love the most, we often treat the worst. So your husband and a wife, they love each other. It's the most important person in their life. And yet often they might take them for granted and not treat them with the kind of respect and care that they would for someone else. I see this in my own marriage. Sometimes I'll be on my phone scrolling through Facebook or something and my wife comes in and she'll tell me a bunch of stuff about her day or some difficult thing that she's going through, whatever it is. And I'm listening, absolutely I'm listening, but I'm also still scrolling. Like, yep, mm -hmm, okay, yeah, sounds terrible. <laughs> now, there is no way that I would do that with one of you, is there? Like imagine we went out for a pastoral chat and we're sitting at the cafe and you're telling me the deepest, darkest secrets. And I'm like, uh -huh, okay, cool, yeah, great. I'll tweet that. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that would be totally unacceptable, wouldn't it? So why would I do that to my wife? Why would I do that to the person that I love the most? Or think of the way you speak to your spouse. Maybe you often get impatient or you get gruff or critical or you're sharp. You say things that you would never say to anyone else. The people that we love the most, sadly, we often treat the worst. And so Proverbs has an altogether different vision for us and it kind of lays it out as a choice. Proverbs 12.4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. What he's saying is harsh words or contemptuous words to your spouse can bring rottenness to their life. It can undermine their confidence. It can sabotage their sense of self. It can break them down and make them vulnerable, make them crumble. But a kind and supportive spouse will crown their husband or their wife. They'll lift them up. They'll elevate them. They will ride on the throne of your praises. So ask yourself, if you're married, how am I treating my spouse? Is my posture towards them basically positive or negative? Am I building them up 
or am I tearing them down? Really what I'm saying is be your spouse's biggest fan. Sure, you know their flaws, but you also know all of their strengths. So celebrate those things and help them be all of those things more and more and more. Help them be all that God has made them to be. So Proverbs says we need to choose wisely and we need to cultivate a happy home. And then thirdly, it says we need to commit to faithfulness. And this is the part of Proverbs that is both the most confronting but also I think one of the most helpful. You see, we don't like talking about how marriages can crumble and fall, how affairs can happen. And it all seems so improbable when you see that couple on their wedding day, smiling, crying with joy, standing together, giving themselves to each other. And yet, of course, those marriages sometimes do fall apart. Feelings fade, hearts can wander, and people can be unfaithful, either emotionally or physically, and no one is immune to this. In fact, if you think you are, you're the most vulnerable. And so we need to talk about this. And I love that Proverbs is willing to talk about this. It doesn't just look at marriage with some rose-tinted glasses. It's very clear-eyed and it's very frank. And if we listen, we'll have a much better understanding of how marriages can break down, how affairs happen, and how we can prevent it happening, both in our own marriages and in the marriages of the people around us. And I want to suggest there's three big dangers that can prompt this. The first thing is boredom and the desire for a new thrill. So you know the classic rom-com plot. A boy meets a girl. They fall for each other straight away. They get together. Things are fun. There's a montage scene where they're walking along the beach. Maybe they've got an ice cream. She gets it on her nose. They start laughing. There's always a paint fight for some reason. Uh, And then there's a shot of them nestling, nestled together on a park bench. They're happy. They're contented. They're with each other. Maybe something goes wrong. There's an obstacle in their relationship. A lie is exposed, but they work it out. They overcome it. And then they declare their love for each other. They, they kiss. There's a Bollywood dance. uh, And then (laughs) fade to black. Like it's a beautiful story, isn't it? We all understand it. But what happens next? See, there aren't many sequels to rom-coms, are there? At least there's not many that show and depict marriage in an exciting and positive way. Why is that? Well, actually, people figure that it's boring. You know, we, we believe that once you get married, it's happily ever after, but we don't see what that looks like. There's not a lot of funny, thrilling material in the day-to-day of marriage. And so I actually think that one of the main reasons that people become unfaithful is that they're bored and they seek a new thrill. People sometimes talk about the seven-year itch. Seven years into marriage, you know each other really well, you're comfortable with each other. So where's the excitement? And so some people are tempted to look elsewhere. See, there is something thrilling about a new relationship, isn't it? That buzz when you see someone that you like, the nervous tension as you wonder, do they like me? The elation when they smile at you, the euphoria when you get to talk to them. That's all exciting. It's, it's thrilling. And that's actually what you had with your spouse most likely when you got to know them. You had all of those things. But now it's kind of waned. And so it's easy for someone to want that again with someone else. 
someone who doesn't know your flaws, someone who hasn't heard all of your jokes and all your A-grade material. <laughs> and so when you're bored, you can get distracted. You can choose a new thrill. And I think this is particularly the case if you're feeling uh, disconnected at home. It's interesting how when Proverbs talks about the words of the adulteress, it, it says things like, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. In chapter 6, the smooth tongue. What's she doing? She's affirming the man, isn't she? She's winning his heart by affirmation. She's not criticising him, not running him down. And I think that points to how we need affirmation from our spouse. Now, don't hear me for a moment. I'm not saying that if your spouse isn't affirming you, you've got a right to walk away. I'm not saying that at all. There's never a right to do that, never a right to just be unfaithful. But what I am saying is your spouse might become vulnerable if you're not giving them the love and respect that they need. So, fellas, when is the last time that you really showed your wife that you loved her? Like, when's the last? How often do you just text her during the middle of the day and say, I love you? How often do you just give a call because you care about them? When was the last time you took them out for a date? When was the last time you made them feel special? And for the women who are married here, are you showing respect to your husband? Uh, Ephesians 5 talks about how we need to love and respect that husbands need to cherish their wives and, and wives need to respect their husbands. And uh, with my wife and I have done probably 40 couples of pre-marriage counselling in the last 10 years and I've seen this play out again and again. Men respond to being respected. One of the things we do is we say, right, fellas, write down three ways you feel respected. And one of the things that men almost every time say, I feel respected when she trusts my opinion on something or when she respects my advice. So when's the last time you, you made your husband realise that you respect him, that you honour him, that you think he's got something to say, that he's got something to contribute? Do you realise the power of your words to build up or to tear down? So we need to speak into the lives of our spouses. We can protect their hearts by honouring them. But then also we can protect our own hearts. See, if you're noticing yourself drawn to someone else outside of your marriage, then you need to do something about it. Proverbs 5, keep your way far from her, the forbidden woman. Do not go near the door of her house. Like if you're feeling tempted, run away. Don't entertain the thought. Don't play with it in your mind. Kill the thought. I love Proverbs 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? What a powerful image. You can't play with fire here. You will get burned. You have to avoid it. And actually one of the best ways to do this is to talk to your spouse about it. To actually say, look, I'm feeling myself a bit drawn to this other person. Like that's an incredibly awkward conversation, but it's also strengthening. See, temptation thrives in solitude and secrecy and shame, but we can break our spell if we're honest about it. So create a marriage where you can talk about things when they're still small before they become a big thing. Have that kind of honesty. And then turn back to your marriage and rekindle your relationship. Make it thrilling again. In Proverbs 2, it talks about the, 
adulterer, adulteress leaving the partner of their youth. And the word partner is a Hebrew word, which means the closest of friends, your best friend. You're leaving your best friend. So rekindle your friendship. If you're tempted, rekindle your friendship. Remind yourselves of the things that you have in common, the joys that you share together. And one thing I like to do is to just kind of celebrate the intimacy of domesticity. See, there is, you have a profound privilege when you're married. You're the only person who gets to see your spouse brush their teeth. It's not glamorous, but it is intimate. You're the only person that sees them naked. And sure, a lot of life is mundane, but there is something beautiful in that. I have this idea for a, a wedding anniversary present one day. Don't tell my wife. Uh, but basically, a lot of our life is her sending me text messages, can you pick these things up from Aldi? And then me going to Aldi and then saying, is this the right thing? And I send a little photo. Is this the right mayonnaise? Is this the right cheese? And so one day I want to do like a present of a collage of all these photos of me just standing there with something. It's stupid, but there's something beautiful in that. There is the intimacy of domestic life. You're building a life together with this one special person. So we need to... Uh, prize these things. And then a, another danger, the second danger I want to talk about is the danger of a lack of intimacy. I'm not appreciating the intimacy that we have or losing it. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that physical intimacy is important. And so there should be a regular pattern of that in our marriages. Of course, there are seasons where this isn't possible. Just after a woman has given birth, for instance, or during the, the tiredness of, of raising toddlers or something like that. So the regularity might change over time, but there's a general sense that you need to pursue this. It needs to be regular, and any breaks in that need to be limited because actually it's dangerous. Paul goes on to say, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying that if you're not doing this, if you're not having that physical intimacy, there is a risk there. There's a, there's, a, there's a gap that the devil will seek to prize open. Now, he's talking about the physical stuff here, but he's going much deeper than that. So do you notice the language he uses? He talks about coming together, being one. He's talking about the physical union, but really he's pointing to the emotional union that makes the physical possible. See, sex is, an, is a, an expression of the intimacy of marriage, but it depends on the fuller intimacy, the intertwining, not just of your body, but of your soul and your mind and your spirit. That's what God's vision is for us, a vision of intimacy. You see this in the first marriage in Genesis. God makes Adam and then Eve, and in Genesis 2, there's this line that I just love. It just, for me, it defines marriage. He brings them together, and in verse 25 it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. See, they had a complete and a profound vulnerability because they knew they could trust their spouse completely and entirely. They were physically naked because they could be emotionally naked. They felt no shame. And that's really what we all want, isn't it? We want people to know us and love us. We want to be fully ourselves, to find someone who accepts us as we are. 
someone who gets us, who understands our fragility, understands our fears and doesn't run away when they hear about them. We want someone who wants to know our stories, finds us fascinating. I mean, that's what all the movies are about, aren't they? Like, I just want to find someone who loves me for me. That's what we sing in our songs, Billy Joel. I love you just the way you are. Isn't that what we all want? We want to be loved just the way we are. We want to be naked and feel no shame. But this is very hard to find and very hard to maintain. See, this picture in Genesis is so profound and beautiful to us because we also sense that it's quite elusive. Yes, you might have it at times in your marriage, but you can also lose it. We don't always feel safe. We don't always feel unashamed. There's lots of things that might cause this. If you're looking at porn, then you'll feel guilty around your wife, so you'll pull away from her. If you're bad-mouthing your husband to your girlfriends, you'll feel distant from him. If you're spending lots of money that your spouse doesn't know about, then you'll try to hide that, and so you, again, you just kind of pull away and have your own little space apart from them. If you're flirting with someone else, whether that's at work or at church or somewhere else, whether you're a man or a woman, you'll start to feel attached to that person and less attached to your husband or your wife. All of these things start to break down the intimacy that we're supposed to have. And yes, it might be seen in a physical distance, but really it's first of all seen in an emotional distance. But it is remarkable how physical intimacy can change that. So in a moment, everything else slips away and those little annoyances don't matter anymore. When you come together, as Paul puts it, you're reminded that you are one. That ultimately is what marriage is. You're two people, two distinct individuals, but you come together to become one new thing. One plus one equals one. That's what God has created And so we need to pursue intimacy in every form. Proverbs 5, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be intoxicated always in her love. Build your connection through appreciating that uh, intimacy. And then thirdly, the third danger, and really this I think is the ultimate danger, is that we can define marriage by our feelings rather than by faithfulness. See, ultimately people are unfaithful because they just want to follow their feelings. They might be unhappy in their marriage, they might be bored, they might feel isolated, they might feel scornful of their spouse, and they think that life will be better with this other person. That'll be more exciting, it'll be more affirming, whatever it is. But this is a mirage. It might feel right, but it's so wrong and incredibly destructive. That's the message of Proverbs. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, as sharp as a two-edged sword. So you'd be a fool to fall for it. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonour and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So really the message is, Don't focus on your feelings, focus on faithfulness. I mean, of course, feelings are nice, they're special, we should seek good feelings in our marriage. Of course we should want to have that. But in my experience, often the best feelings come through faithfulness. 
you know, there are difficult periods in your marriage where it just feels like it's a bit boring or a bit mundane or it's, you're just not with each other much. It's just you're not connecting. But then when you come out of those moments, you realise that actually we've got something here. And each time you go through these cycles, you realise your marriage is getting strengthened and you have a good feeling about that. Or you have a big argument, a big disagreement. The feeling when that is resolved is just so beautiful. Or maybe those times of sickness, of vulnerability, where you realise just how much this other person really cares about you. That's the joy of faithfulness. The writer Tim Keller uh, makes the point that traditional vows don't mention feelings at all. We promise, he says, not to always feel loving, but rather to be loving, no matter how we feel at the time. And actually our vows are all about this. They're all about helping the other person feel comfortable, feel naked and feel no shame. It's a covenant saying, I will always be with you no matter what. And it's also saying, I'm going to be here even as we change. I mean, think about the, the promises that we make. They all imply change. I'm going to have and hold you from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for in sickness and in health. No matter what is happening, whatever is changing, one thing is constant, my commitment to you, my commitment to faithfulness. Keller says a wedding is not so much a claim of present love as a promise of future love. And that's the glory of marriage, that you keep loving, that you keep your covenant. Lewis Smedes writes, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were married and each of the five has been me. What he's saying is that throughout the period of a marriage, you change as a person. You're one thing and then you become another. You start out fit and you become fat like me. <laughs> you, you, maybe you start employed and successful and then you go through seasons of unemployment and Worry. Perhaps you're, you're, you're strong and then you go through periods of mental illness. Whatever it is, you're changing. You're five different pe people over a period of time, but the other person is always still there, loving you, loving you, whoever you are. And there's something glorious and beautiful about that, isn't it? I mean, we know this instinctively. We love to see the marriages that last. You know, it's that, that old couple on the news stooped over the wedding, uh, over the cake, celebrating 70 years of marriage. We love to see that. Or that montage in up, you know, near the start, where you see the story of their marriage together and you all cry. Like, we want that for ourselves. We want a love that lasts. And there's something significant that that is still our hope. 50% of marriages in Australia end in divorce. So that could, you would think, make us cynical pessimistic, just fatalistic. But still we hold on to hope. We hold on to the belief that love can last, that it can be possible. And we want to believe that it's, to have, that it's possible to find someone who will be satisfied with you for the rest of their life. And we love it when we see it. I was reading the other day about a guy called Robertson McQuilkin. He was a, a prominent theologian in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, rose to the position of president of Columbia Bible College, a man of influence, great ministry, many opportunities. But at the height of his career, his wife started developing dementia and she would feel incredibly anxious whenever Robertson was away from her. And so she would, uh, she only was at peace when he was around. 
And so during the day, she would walk the half a mile to, to the college, just kind of get out of the house and just had to be there. And one night they found her feet were all bloody because she'd been, didn't have shoes and so on. She just had to be around her husband, but it was destroying her. And so instead of her coming to him, Robertson decided that he would come to her. So he gave up his role at the college to become her full-time carer, to be with her all of the time. And it was a lot of work, very difficult work. Might take two hours to feed her. She'd become incontinent, so you'd have to change her regularly. But this was a no-brainer for him. He says, it took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death to his part? But he hastened to add that he wasn't just doing this because he had to. This wasn't just a grim duty, he says. This, he wasn't resigning himself to do it. He was doing it as an honour. She had, after all, he says, cared for me for almost four decades with marvellous devotion and now it was my turn. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And remarkably, as all of this was happening, there was still this profound sense of iron sharpening iron. As he was looking after her, he, he came to look for God's resources more and more and more. And he even started to learn from her. Even as her mind was decaying, she was still teaching him. He says, she always wanted to be around me. I wish I loved God like that, desperate to be near him at all times. And so she's teaching me day by day. It's beautiful, isn't it? And wouldn't we all want to have a relationship that's beautiful like that? You see, we can. Our relationships, our marriages can have the beauty of the gospel. See, I think marriage is the most, one of God's favourite pictures of the gospel. It tells the gospel story. It lines it up. See, we were made perfect. We were made to be naked and without shame, made to be vulnerable before God and before each other. That was what we were made for. And when we had that, humanity had joy and delight. When Adam first saw Eve in the Bible, we're told that he sang, like we could see that he's singing with joy at this gift that God has given him. But then sin poisons all of that. So what was the very first thing that Adam and Eve did after they realised they'd sinned? They hid. They covered themselves up. They made clothes for themselves. They could no longer be naked because they felt shame. And then when God confronts Adam and says, you've done this thing that is wrong, what does Adam do? First of all, he used to sing to Eve and now he throws her under the bus. It was this woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And so they couldn't be naked without shame. And that's where the angst comes from that plagues marriage. We want this intimacy but because we're sinful, we can't have it perfectly. But thankfully, wonderfully, Jesus offers a way forward. See, before God, we are naked and ashamed, shameful. But Jesus loves us anyway. He loved us despite our sin. He knew everything about us. He'd seen everything that was wrong, and still he loved us. And he came to make that possible. He came to bring us together with him. He died on the cross to cleanse us from our sin and he made a covenant promising to love us always and then to, to work in our lives to sharpen us, to help us to be all that we could be 
So our marriages are supposed to point to that. Uh, my wife and I, when we do marriage prep, we pray that people will become Christians through the marriages of our church. Because in marriage, you get to experience and express the gospel. You get to experience it as God shows you his love, his commitment, and you get to express it to the world. So if we're unfaithful, then we suggest to the world that God is unfaithful, that you can't trust him, that it all depends on whether you're doing well. He might like you one day, but he might not like you the next. You can't be sure of him. But if we are faithful, if we love through everything, then we point to the God of grace who is totally committed to us, who will never let us go. And so marriage expresses the wonder of the gospel. I'm really lucky in that I get to officiate uh, every wedding that I go to these days. <laughs> and my favourite bit is watching the groom. See, I get to see him before the wedding and he's nervous and he's anxious but he's full of anticipation. And in the minutes leading up to the ceremony, he's wondering, is she going to turn up? It's okay, mate, she's just there. It's all going to happen. And then when the bride comes in, when everyone looks at the bride, I always look at the groom because I love seeing his face, this face of joy and excitement and wonder, this absolute pride and friends, that's how Jesus is going to look at us. See, in the Bible, it tells us that actually God's people are going to get married to Jesus, not in the same way that we have human marriages. But he wants us to know that he is committed to us, that he will love us forever. That's his plan for us. Ephesians 5 said that he is preparing us like a bride. He can't wait to see us. And so when we get to the end of this life, we will find Jesus at the end of the aisle. He's waiting for us, waiting to embrace us. And he's full of love and pride. And as we walk towards him, he's excited to welcome us, to welcome us home, to live happily ever after. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the incredible gift of marriage, one of your first gifts to humanity, and one that tells your gospel in profound ways. Lord, I pray for the marriages of our church, that we might experience and express the gospel in our marriages, that we might experience your profound commitment to us and your love in all times, and that we might express that to each other and to the world around us, that people might truly come to know you through our marriages. So, Lord, strengthen and equip uh, those who are married for this work. Lord, I also want to pray for those who are single. Perhaps there's sadness in their life or tragedy that has made them single. Perhaps there's a longing uh, and a wonder and anxiety even about that. Lord, I, I pray that you'll draw close. Jesus, you were the one who lived your life single. You know what it is to be single. So, Lord, I pray that you'll come close, that you'll give clarity and hope and trust for those who are seeking something else, for someone else. But Lord, I pray that all of us together, we might be a family that supports each other as brothers and sisters. 
We thank you that you are our heavenly Father. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are there standing at the end of time waiting to welcome us. We thank you that you love us forever, long beyond death. Death cannot part us from you. Death is only the moment where we come together with you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.